welcome to Cosmos Quizmas, the Christmas quiz featuring me, Olivia, your host from the Australian Science Media Centre, and panellists from Cosmos Science. Our panellists and quiz takers today are Gail McCallum, give us a wave, Matthew Aegis, and Ima Perfetto from Cosmos Science. So they spend their days writing those very same science stories for the Cosmos Science online news journal, magazines, and podcasts. And this time, I'm also going to give you some bonus points if you can tell me anything about the story in question. So any extra details you can give me, like an exam, show me you're working out. You know what I mean? So, Matt, I'll give you the first question. So what is the tallest grass in the world? Can you tell me? I don't even know. any. I, don't, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Would anyone else like to give it a go? It's, I'm going to guess it's the Xanthorea, the grass tree, and I'm going to be wrong. That's a great guess, but it is incorrect. You're right. I don't know any names of any grasses except for, like, the lawn that grows in my front and back garden, so I'm no help at all. The correct answer, interestingly enough, is bamboo. Uh, Bamboo is a type of grass. And the giant dragon bamboo native to Southeast Asia is the tallest of them all. So, Emma, I've got a question for you now. Uh, This is a quote. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. Who said this and why did it make the news? So I've got as multiple choice for you. Was this A, Bunny the dog from Instagram and TikTok using the talking buttons? Was it B, a Google AI chatbot? Was it C, an African gray parrot using an iPad? Or was it D, a robot addressing the US Senate? Is that that Google AI from earlier this year that just sent the whole world into a massive spiral uh, questioning whether or not the AI was sentient or not. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah. So it was the Google AI chatbot called Lambda, uh, mm-hmm. and a Google engineer was put on leave after claiming it was sentient. Yes, he was trying <laughs> to save a, a new sentient life form. I think we gave him a bit of a rip. You know, he, he believed very strongly in the sentience. I wonder what he's doing now. I'd be interested to see what's going on with that engineer. This one is a bit of an interesting question. So what I might do for this one, it's an explainer. So I'll throw it to all three of you. Um, Gail, you can start, but um, I will give the point to whoever I think gives the best explanation. The question is, can you explain to me what a phylogenetic tree is? Gail, I'll start with you. Um, A phylogenetic tree starts with a um, species and then explores variation over time. It can get very complex very quickly. In the early days of COVID, it became quite extra. There was an amazing website that was drawing these extraordinary in real time um, variants, looking at countries they came from and other places that they were going. They're quite beautiful to look at um, and a really interesting example of how visual representation of data can add a lot more than, you know, many paragraphs of text. Brilliant answer. Really good answer. Um, Emma, would you like to give it a go as well? I don't know how I can top that one. I think maybe you could explain it as it being sort of almost like uh, a version of like a family tree when you look at us going back in time, but for how different is it species or variants within a species relate to each other genetically it looks less like a a tree i think and more like a web however uh between them yeah brilliant as well and this is going to be difficult for me to choose and matt would you like to give it a go explain two reasonable explanations i think so i'm gonna (laughs) 
Thanks for that glowing <laughs> accolade. <laughs> um, I'm aiming for reasonable. This is great for me. <laughs> the way that I would explain it in simple terms is then it is a diagram which indicates from, in theory, a single ancestor how a species that you might be interested in looking at ends up getting there through evolution. So branching out through each divergence of evolutionary web or, um, as, as Emma said, uh, or tree, um, how individual species, in theory, basically branch off from that single ancestor. So you could have a particular type of dinosaur, for instance, and indicate all the points in evolutionary divergence that eventually ends up with a chicken. Brilliant. So all three were excellent, excellent answers, and I really struggled to decide who to choose here. So I've um, also asked the opinion of my producer next to me, Rachel. Uh, we've both kind of thought quietly that Emma has given us the best answer. So very good. And my reasoning for that is that you're very good with relating it back to something that someone would already know, in this case, a family tree. Which I appreciate. Thank so you one very point. much. <laughs> so next question. I, you know what? I'm going to give this to you, Gail, again, because the other question was kind of throwing to everyone, which I feel is a little bit unfair. So at the start of the year, the Australian government made an announcement about koalas. What was that announcement? Sadly, koalas have increased on the endangered list, so they've made it onto the endangered list. Um, I really think Emma should be answering this question because koalas are her special subject. Oh. I have learnt as a person who lived in South Australia last year that I have never seen as many koalas as I've seen in this state. It's impossible to go for a walk and not spot a koala. They are actually introduced in South Australia and they're a different, a different range. But if you want to see one, come to Adelaide. You know, you can just stand in a car park and point at them in trees. That's great. That's, and, and you're correct, by the way. You do get a point for that because they were announced as officially endangered. Hold on. I want to steal here. They are announced only as endangered in specific oh. parts of Australia. That's true, Matt. You're right. You haven't stolen. You've increased. They are, they are only <laughs> endangered in the eastern states, so Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT. Interesting. It is a specific conservation status. I'll give you a point for that as well because that's a very good clarification point. Since we're chucking out points here, Emma, have you got anything to add to the story as well? So technically, I guess you can say that they were introduced to South Australia or that they were reintroduced after their numbers had decreased incredibly. And they were introduced from like a really small population. I think it was an island population and they did really well, but because they started from such a small population, it means that they are not endangered, but they are incredibly inbred uh, because they're just interbreeding with each other from, yeah, like almost like a, a artificial population bottleneck from being reintroduced into the state. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to, your points for everyone. You Yay! get a point. You get a point. You, and I know that kind of balances it out too. Everyone has no points, but you all did brilliantly. And I'm feeling generous today. The Christmas spirit, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, this year, the Australian government passed Maeve's Law. That's a bill legalizing mitochondrial donation. Can you tell me what is mitochondrial donation and why do people want it legalized? I can't tell you. I could hazard a guess. You can guess. Give it a go. 
Well, um, mitochondrial DNA possesses certain inherited characteristics that may be beneficial um, to particular individuals with a need for those characteristics and therefore legalising it um, would prevent going to go with inheritable disease, which would otherwise not be bestowed by the DNA inherent in an individual's birth mitochondria. Yeah, absolutely correct. It's um, to reduce the risk of inheritable diseases from mitochondrial DNA. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's a big deal and lots of people are very happy about it, basically. <laughs> so the next question I have is for Emma here. Very few human remains have ever been found at the site of the Battle of Waterloo, now in Belgium. So according to research published this year, where do experts think the bodies are and why haven't they been found? Is that the, the battle that they reference in the ABBA song? You mean in the song called Waterloo? <laughs> oh, is that? <laughs> it's just playing in repeat on my head. Um, maybe animals came and ate all the people? <laughs> or body snatchers took the bodies to do weird stuff with? I would imagine that a lot of them were actually blown to smithereens by artillery and that would explain why many bodies weren't found because if you survived, you walked out of there alive and if you were killed, you probably were blown up or you would have maybe just rotted, like rotted into the ground. Hmm. Graphic that... and well thought out but not the answer that I'm looking for. <laughs> Dale, would you like to give it a go? Absolutely not. Essentially the theory behind where these bodies went is, um, Emma, you were getting there, they were Stolen, possibly, and crushed and sold as fertilizer. So that's um, that's what. Hey, the people were doing weird stuff to the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I deserve half a point. <laughs> Gail, fish get itchy too, and scientists have found them scratching their heads, eyes, gills, and sides using what as their favorite scratching post. Oh, I feel like this is a question I should cede to Emma. This feels like a, you know, animal behavioural questions are Emma's special subjects. <laughs> you want to give it a guess, scale before you pass it off? I'm going to guess coral, but it's a guess. That's incorrect, but a very good guess. I guess I'll pass it off to Emma because Gail <laughs> said Emma first. <laughs> they were rubbing up against, like, um, other larger fish, but most importantly against sharks. I think it was. Yeah, correct. <laughs> In the ocean. <laughs> Which is wild to me that they just come up and just have a little just bit of a scratch. A scratch. scratch. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, a point for you, Emma. Matt, a robot falcon was used at an airport in the Netherlands to reduce flight delays and cancellations. How? If a falcon hunts other animals, I would imagine that it prevents obstructive animals from interfering with the flight process. That is why they would use a robotic falcon to guarantee predator was present to prevent other animals that would interfere with that process taking place. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, it's to um, scare away smaller birds that it would prey on. Uh, and apparently was more effective than drones and um, distress calls from birds being played. It was more effective than that as well. And really interestingly, bird collisions with aircraft cost $1.4 billion annually, which is insane, absolutely insane to me. Emma, how do European eels have sex? Carefully. Oh, 
<laughs> hmm. Interesting. I would think that they would probably do some sort of thing like other other animals where they release eggs, release sperm potentially, and they like mix together and fertilize in the water as opposed to any other um, method that's more body based. <laughs> I will get, I think I will give you a half a point for that one because yes. it, this was a little bit of a trick question in that we don't actually know, but oh. their best guess is what you've just said. Oh. So there was some research. Earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. There was some research <laughs> earlier this year that finally tracked European eels back to their breeding grounds, with the, which they've tried to do for hundreds of years and weren't able to until recently. And, um, and now, yeah, they'll just have to figure out how, how they do the do, which they don't really know yet. When the larva forms, they were, they're so different to eels that they mm. were thought for a long time to be a, a different species. And it was only in the last 50 years, I think, that they became species. But what, what, isn't this cool? Because the Sargasso Sea was meant to be, that's where we famously thought that eels came from. And, and Olivia, that, you know, that's not the case now. It's amazing <laughs> that something that is so ubiquitous that travels on an annual migration has taken this long to kind of pinpoint. Absolutely. I find it amazing that in this day and age we can still have mysteries in science. It's just that's why I love this question. It's just so interesting to me. So the next question I have for is for you, Gail. A Japanese researcher has been studying if dogs cry and why they cry after noticing tears in the eyes of his own dog. So according to the research he published this year, what causes dog tears? What makes them cry is when they don't see their loved ones for a long time. They, an emotional response is elicited by the people, by the humans they know as opposed to strangers. And the way that they tested this was, and this is the bit of the story that I've never managed to uncover, first they collected dog tears and then they measured the relative volume of dog tears when the dog saw its owner after a period of time and when it saw strangers oh after a period of time. And what I want to see now is the dog tear collector mechanism. <laughs> picturing a tiny tiny little pipette <laughs> well, I in the story i feel that there should have been a diagram with it i'm gonna get i'm giving you two points for that because you not only said the the what but the how and the you know the how and the why we've basically personified this in a way and, and just said happiness they cried with happiness um but you're right emotional response to their owners returning which is just gorgeous and I have two at home that will be like that when I get home. <laughs> Matt, in September Australian and Indonesian archaeologists announced that they had found skeletal remains in Borneo that showed evidence of receiving a type of medical care tens of thousands of years before what we initially thought was the earliest version of this. So what was the medical care this skeleton appeared to have received? An amputation? Correct. Yeah, that was quick and easy. <laughs> was his leg amputated? It was. Hard to keep them alive, though, afterwards because he was, like, it was evidence that he'd, like, continued to live after the fact. And I have one more question here, and that's for Emma. Uh, if you're over 50, what are some science-backed ways to build a successful dating profile? I think you need to include hobbies. <laughs> do you need to include whether you have children or not <laughs> include a photo where you're smiling maybe one where you're showing teeth 
and don't leave your bio empty. Like don't leave it blank because um, that's boring and people won't, won't swipe right, I guess. <laughs> Please God, t- tell, me, tell me how I'm doing. <laughs> I will give you a point, but I'll also open this up because there are quite a few ways. But I do want to give Gail and Matt an opportunity to maybe add to this. I think, Matt, this one's over to you. What was the scientific basis of the, uh, like, how did they work it out? Was it just because it was involving data or? uh... It was um, a a bunch of different kinds of profiles that were kind of rated by people on, on, you know, whether or not they would swipe and how how attractive they seemed and how trustworthy and blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm going to just probably say that uh, there would be a preference for level of detail rather than deficiency of, of information provided and potentially also um, indicating certain values um, that would therefore infer compatibility for someone reading that profile. Yeah, I'll give you a point for that and I'll give you kind of the general overarching themes that these scientists have now said. And, and this is why it was a little bit difficult for me to assign points, but what they said was be more, quote, original, uh, include your own personal style and include metaphors. Metaphors went really well and include concrete personal information. So Emma and Matt, you both kind of alluded to concrete personal information, which is why I'm giving you the point. So I have the points tallied for you now. In third place, I have Gail with three points. I told you Yay! I was the best professional idiot. In second place, I have Matt with five points. And the winner is, drum roll, even though we've already figured it out, Emma with six points. Congratulations. Extremely unexpected. Christmas hat, which you may wear until the next installment of Cosmos Quizmas. I'm coming upstairs and I'm putting it on right now. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm really happy about that. This was one of five quizzes in our Christmas series. And if you liked it, be sure to visit the website cosmosmagazine.com and search for Christmas Quiz to see more. Some of today's questions were taken from a short list of the OzSMC top 10 science stories and top 10 weird science stories of 2022. If you're curious about what made the cut, visit our news portal, cymex.org. And if you'd like to know more about how the Oz SMC works and how we improve the accuracy of science reporting for all Australians, be sure to visit smc.org.au. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks to the three of you as well. And we hope to see you again for the next Christmas. Thanks, Olivia.